Welcome! Thanks for tuning in to A Titanic Podcast, where I talk about terrifying disasters in horrific detail. I'm your host, Devony, and today I'll be sharing with you why and how the Titanic was built and how it changed the world. Titanic was built at the Harland and Wolf shipyard in Belfast, Ireland in 1909. The shipwreck had been around since it was purchased by Edward James Harland in 1858. Harlan and Wolf became official in 1861, then fell in the hands of William James Peary, who stepped up as chairman after Harlan's death in 1895. Bruce Ismay, chairman of the White Star Line, came to Lord Peary in 1907 to discuss a new line of ships. The plan was to build three new Olympic-class liners to, in order to compete with another major line at the time, who was Cunard. Recently constructed two new ships in 1907, the Lusitania and the Mauritania. The Lusitania was known for its luxurious interior, and Mauritania, its speed. In fact, it held the record for the fastest crossing of the Atlantic until 1929. What did White Star Line and Bruce Ismay want? Uh, they wanted a better line of ships that were more reliable and more luxurious than Cunard's. And Lord Peary at Harlan and Wolf was on board. He also wanted to compete. Kennards were the most modern, and Peary wanted Harlan and Wolf to have the reputation of building the most modern ships. Both Peary and Ismay wanted their ships to be known to both millionaires and immigrants as the ships to go on. Ismay and Lord Peary came to an agreement and the ships were designed as the shipyard renovated and prepared to build White Star Line's newest assets. The Titanic design was a collaborative effort of three individuals, Thomas Andrews, Alexander Carlyle, and Edward Wilding. Andrews was a lively man in his mid-thirties, described by others as a friendly gentleman, always greeting others with a warm handshake and a kind disposition. He was also very humble, preferring to call himself a shipbuilder or director rather than the most prestigious titles that he was well in his right to use, such as naval architect. With his tragic death aboard the maiden voyage of the ship he helped create, he is the most notable of the ship's designers. Andrews was the managing director of the design department, and he was the one who produced every drawing of every part of the three ships. Alexander Carlyle was Harlan and Wolf's chief architect before Andrews. Although Andrews is more responsible for the overall design of the ship, Carlyle focused his attention on the interior. Carlyle worked at Harlan and Wolf for over 40 years after starting an apprenticeship at the age of 16 in 1870. He retired in June of 1910, giving his position to Andrews and ending his work of designing the Titanic. Edward Wilding also played a huge part in the designing of the ships, providing mathematical expertise when it came to calculating stability, water displacement, and hull integrity of the new superliners. Out of the three chief designers, Wilding was the only one who joined the Royal Navy. So Harlan and Wolf ran into a problem pretty fast because there was nowhere big enough to build the Titanic. Uh, they renovated in 1906 in order to have the capacity for Titanic. Uh, they got modern equipment, larger slipways, the works. The renovation added an additional three slipways to the shipyard's original four. 
Although one of the original slipways was left untouched, the remaining three were replaced with two larger slipways, so they ended up with a total of six at the end of renovations. The construction of the Titanic brought Harlan and Wolf shipyards forward into the new century. The construction of this ship really was a big turning point in a lot of places, especially Belfast, and it all started at Harlan and Wolf. Over the new slipways, two giant gantries had to be built in order to prepare for the construction of White Star Line's proposed superliners. Gantries are essentially cranes that can lift workers and materials into position in or around the ships being built. They were called Aerol gantries and proved to be the largest in the world at the time, measuring 228 feet or 69 meters tall and weighed 6,000 tons. It cost the shipyard 100,000 sterling and rested over the new slipways, dominating the Belfast skyline. Construction was confirmed after a meeting with Bruce Ismay and another rep from White Star Line on July 29, 1908. Three months after the Olympics keel was laid on December 16, 1908, Titanic's keel was laid on March 31, 1909. This marked the first day of Titanic's construction. Titanic was built in slipway number three and was given the yard number 401. Not, this is not relevant right now, but we'll go back to this number. Both the Olympic and the Titanic were over 100 feet longer than the Lusitania and the Mauritania, making them the largest ships ever built. Harlan and Wolf typically employed about 14,000 men, but at the peak of construction, the shipyard hired 15,000 workers. About 3,000 of those, 20% of the entire number of those employed, worked on Titanic. As you can imagine, this affected a lot of families in Belfast, presenting more work opportunities and even more spotlight shed on Harlan and Wolf. Workers spent 49 hours a week at the shipyard over the course of six days, with Saturdays being shorter days and Sundays being their only day off. The Titanic's many one-inch thick steel plates were held together by rivets. Three million, in fact. Although most rivets used constructing the ship were made entirely of steel, Many rivets on the Titanic were a mix of iron and steel, especially those in the bow section of the ship. Huge machines were needed to hammer the steel rivets into place, called hydraulic riveter hammers. In photos, they look like giant C-clamps or wrenches. But the machine was too large to fit into the curves of the bow. Remember, the bow was the front of the ship. This is why the iron rivets were used in this area. They had to be hammered into place by hand, and the iron was much easier for men to work with. Uh, this also is a detail that will be talked about again down the road. The Olympic-class liners were to be built with a double-bottom design that would extend all the way up the side of the hull. And what do I mean by double-bottom? In layman's terms, this means the Titanic had two layers of steel on the bottom of the ship. In between the keel, which is the very bottom, like the spine, and the tank top, which is the, the very bottom floor inside of the ship that workers could go to, this there was a space in between those that was about five feet and three inches high. This space was necessary for safety and also for freshwater storage for ballast or to help keep the ship afloat. 
5,000 tons of water in 44 watertight tanks were held in between the two bottoms of the ship. The upper bottom of the ship was referred to as the tank top because it sat on top of these tanks of water. The water in between the double bottom was used to ballast the ship to balance and add weight to the bottom so it wasn't, wasn't top heavy. The double bottom used 2,000 steel plates to form the outer skin of the hull. The sheets were exceptionally heavy, but as speed was not a consideration or a factor in the design, this did not matter. Titanic was all about luxury. It didn't matter that it weighed it down. The exceptional weight of the steel plates were deemed necessary for the strength required for such a mammoth vessel. Just above the double bottom was the watertight compartments. The innovative design of these compartments led to many believing the ship was unsinkable. The hull was separated into 16 watertight compartments and contained heavy, centrally controlled watertight doors that could be lowered remotely from the bridge to trap water that penetrated the ship's hull. With the water that was previously breaching the side or bottom of the ship trapped with nowhere to go, it would stop rushing in and the ship would be saved from sinking. There were even powerful pumps installed that could empty each compartment. Even if multiple compartments were breached, it was believed a ship built by the like the Titanic, could stay afloat for a while, long enough to evacuate all passengers and crew with time to spare. Any two compartments could flood without sinking the ship. If three or four of the first compartments near the front of the ship were to flood, she would still be safe. Even if all four compartments found in the front of the ship were to flood, flood the ship would still remain afloat. Although the watertight compartments were a great safety feature for the ship, as well as the double bottom, the ship's builders did not choose to have the compartments, or bulkheads is another word for them, run all the way to the top. They thought it was unnecessary to the ship's design. But think of it like this. If you fill your bathtub all the way, what's going to happen? It's going to overflow onto the bathroom floor because the tub's edge doesn't run all the way to the ceiling. That's how the watertight compartments were like. The wall separating one compartment to another didn't go all the way up to the ceiling. Remember this for later. All in all, eight workers were killed during Titanic's build. Although this may seem tragic, it was actually quite promising for the yard, which estimated one death for every 100,000 sterling spent, making Titanic's expected death toll 15. To the shipyard, seven lives were spared in the building of the Titanic. Remember that double bottom where there was a space a little over five feet high in between the two bottoms? Well, a rumor started to spread that a worker got trapped in between the holes. Did this actually happen? No! <laughs> this legend is often reported as true in connection with the Great Eastern Ship originally known as the Leviathan. It was a behemoth of a liner, which was easily a whopping six times larger than any ship previously built when she was launched in 1857. When the Great Eastern was eventually dismantled for scrap some 30 years later, the skeleton of a shipyard worker was reportedly found inside her double hull. There is evidence to support that no one could have died in the double hole during construction because the hole was not sealed during construction. Inspection hatches were used while building, and they weren't closed until later, 
providing a means of escape if a worker were to find themselves in between the two layers of the double bottom. And also, if you're anything like me, you're probably wondering, how did the body of a supposed worker turn into a skeleton if it's trapped in watertight steel? So, even if a body is trapped in an airtight container, decomposition will still happen by a process known as anaerobic decomposition. Normally, in a regular environment, a dead body can turn into a skeleton in a process called skeletonization in about three weeks. A body in an airtight area will take longer to decompose, but it still will. So, if a worker had been trapped in the double bottom of a ship, it could be plausible for their skeleton to be uncovered about 30 years later. I googled all of this. You're welcome, especially you, FBI agent assigned to my computer. Anyways, in January of 1910, Lord Peary and Carlisle traveled from Belfast to Liverpool to meet with White Star Line and present revised plans for the ship with different interior decorations and life-saving equipment. At this meeting, Carlisle showed how plans of the 16 sets of davits that were to hold the lifeboats. He made it clear each set of davits could hold four lifeboats for a total of 64. However, at this meeting, an official determination on the number of lifeboats Titanic would be carrying was not made. Carlisle ordered the davits the ship would need, and that was it. On June 30th of that same year, Carlisle retired from Harlan and Wolfe. And no, it was not because of a huge falling out caused by an argument about how many lifeboats Titanic should carry. If you've seen Titanic, Birth of a Legend, that came out in 2005, you might remember a scene showing a dramatization of this meeting from January 1910. But that never happened. If Carlisle had, in fact, left the company because of an argument, why didn't he leave in January? Why did he wait until June? During the British Inquiry of 1912, Carlyle made it clear that he retired from the company. He didn't resign. Several newspapers and books have made it clear that he retired due to his health, not because of an argument. Anyways, in addition to Andrew's keen supervision of the design process, Ismay also played an active role, insisting on being consulted on any changes to the, to the design. Andrews was the managing director of the design department, but Ismay had the final say on all decisions regarding the development of the Olympic-class liners. Ismay noted that the Cunard vessels had four funnels on their ships and envisioned the new White Star liners would have three funnels and four masts. Peary altered the design to add an extra funnel, which would simply serve as ventilation for the engine room. Peary reasoned that four funnels would provide a more commanding presence for the White Star Line ships, and raking the funnels backwards would provide the impression of speed, even when the ships were stationary. Peary also altered the number of masts from Ismay's four to two, one forward and the other aft of the four tunnels. Reasoning any more would make the new ships appear to be sailing ships. In September of 1911, Olympic was involved in a collision with the HMS Hawk near the Isle of Wight. Olympic was near the Isle of Wight when it started turning to the port side, turning towards the east coast of the Isle. Remember, port is left, starboard is right. The HMS Hawk was heading from the west to the east. 
The commander of the Hawk was surprised by the Olympic's wide turn, but managed to position the ship behind the Olympic on the starboard side. Hawk increased its speed in order to pass the liner, but the wake of Olympic was just too strong. It pulled the Hawk towards its side. The Hawk's bow stove in, and the Olympic was left with a large hole that ran above and below the waterline that was so big you can clearly see two men inside of the Olympic with at least six feet of space on either side of them inside the ship when they took a photo of the damage later. According to reports, there were no casualties. Then I have some pictures here that I'm looking at just to kind of describe how the hawk looked after it hit the Olympic. And it, it looks smashed in, the bow of it is smashed inwards, kind of like the photos of that young woman's clay sculpture after she accidentally dropped it on the floor. So it's all stove in, and then there's a huge gash in Olympic side. And I got the one with the, the photo of the men standing in it. It looks huge. The Olympic was at fault. However, the ship was being run by the harbor pilot. So her captain, E.J. Smith, later the Titanic's captain, wasn't to blame. After a quick fix with some wood, the Olympic limped back to Harlan and Wolf to be repaired. She was repaired using parts from the Titanic, since the ships were so similar in design, and the Titanic was still under construction. The cost of the collision was high for White Star Line. Not only did they have to pay for a legal battle and the repairs, but they also had their best ship out of service. However, the Olympic returned to the water in just six weeks after the major repairs were completed. Of course, when pulling parts from one ship being constructed to repair another, it delays the ship's completion. But when the Titanic was complete, it was the largest movable man-made object in the world. Its internal usable volume or gross register tons was 46,328 and she could carry over 900 tons of freight and passenger baggage. She was 882 feet and nine inches long, just three inches longer than the Olympic, and was 175 feet tall from the top of the funnels to the keel, which is the bottom. She had 840 staterooms in all, 416 being in first class, 162 in second, and 262 in third. Titanic was powered by three engines, one central steam turbine engine that could only move forward, and two reciprocal engines that could be put into reverse. The central engine was so large it stood four decks tall and was the largest built at the time. The two outer propellers were made of bronze, and the central propeller weighed 22 tons. The propellers were installed at an angle to ensure the ship would not vibrate and disturb the passengers, sacrificing a bit of speed for luxury. The engines were designed for comfort in mind, with two sets of spur gear and two sets of beveled gear in a herringbone pattern on the teeth, and it made for a much tighter grip between the gears, which reduced vibration transferred on the rest of the ship. The ship also had what was known as boss arms to help keep the ship from vibrating. Boss arms help control the panting of the ship. When water pressure changes, like when the ship hits a crest of the wave and then the trough, the hull of a ship wants to bend in and out, which is called panting. The boss arms keep the hull of the ship from bending like that, causing less vibrations on the ship and keeping passengers happy. Titanic's top speed was 23 knots, 
from the help of her 29 triple furnace coal-fired boilers. With all the boilers firing, the Titanic produced around 46,000 horsepower. 25 of those boilers were double-ended, making a total of 162 furnaces that could be lit at any given time. To feed these boilers, Titanic could hold 6,611 tons of coal and could go through 825 tons of coal in one day. Titanic was actually a very fuel-efficient ship. Kennard's ships at the time used about 1,050 tons of coal per day. Unfortunately, as fuel-efficient as it was at the time, the Titanic still dumped about 100 tons of ash into the sea each day. She had four funnels, in which three were functional, and the fourth was added more for aesthetic reasons to add extra majesty and power to her look. We talked about the funnels earlier during the design phase of the ship, and I'm not going to repeat it. The funnels were used to expel smoke from the boilers down at the bottom of the ship and were built 81 and a half feet higher than the deck in order to keep the passengers from being covered in soot. Each funnel weighed 60 tons. Titanic had 10 decks, starting up top with the boat deck, then the promenade deck, followed by passenger decks, B to G, then the orlop deck, and finally, the tank top. Titanic was so large, in fact, that second officer, Charles Lightoller, said it took him 14 days of walking the ship before he felt confident that he could find his way around without getting lost. There is a rumor that the ship's whole number given to her by Harlan and Wolf is 390904, which spelled out no Pope backwards. Rumor has that the Catholic workers who built Titanic found this to be disturbing and claimed the ship sank because of a curse placed upon it. This is particularly easy to crack wide open, as Titanic's actual whole number was not 390904. It was 131428. Northern Ireland is also mainly Protestant, so Catholic workers on site were probably few and far between. One White Star employee took it upon himself to say, not even God himself could sink this ship. Captain E.J. Smith was so confident in modern shipbuilding that he believed that any disaster wouldn't be able to cause the ship to founder. Before it launched, the Titanic was known as the SS Titanic, meaning screw steamer or steam ship. Propellers were also known as screws at the time. Her name was changed to RMS Titanic after she first carried the Royal Mail. RMS stands for Royal Mail Ship or Royal Mail Steamer. It launched on May 31, 1911, entering the Victoria Channel from a slipway at the Queen's Yard of the Harlan and Wolf Shipyard. According to Bruce Ismay, Titanic cost the White Star Line $7,500,000 to build. In today's money, that is still less than the cost of making James Cameron's 1997 movie of the same name, which cost $200 million. Although the work was hard, the pay was little, and the hours were long, the Titanic helped employ many people in Belfast during the years of her construction. There was also a strong sense of pride in Titanic, which not only provided huge employment for the shipyard and other businesses, but also symbolized the engineering skill and initiative of Belfast and its people in producing what would be the biggest and best vessel in maritime history. Una, from the Belfast Titanic Society, shares a modern perspective of what the people of Belfast think of when they reflect upon the Titanic. What happened to the Titanic was a disaster. She was not. The workers made the largest and most extravagant ship of its time. 
The outside world only had the Titanic for a few days, but Belfast had her for years. The details of Titanic's launch, its christening, and its earlier days will be covered on next week's episode. Be sure to check out my Instagram and Twitter at a Titanic Podcast. If you have any questions for me or concern for my well-being after finding out about this podcast, or if you'd like the transcripts from this episode, email me at atitanicpodcast at gmail.com. You can still help my podcast grow for free. Like it, share it, leave a comment and review. You'll be helping making this podcast grow and continue with other events in history. Tune in next week for season one, episode two, The Christening and a Near Miss. Thanks for listening.